Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support. Hello and Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. My name is Eleanor Penny. This week we're taking a special Navarra Media style look back at one of the great classic Christmas movies. It's a Wonderful Life came out in 1946. This was when the shadow of both World War II and the Great Depression loomed large in the American imagination and it was just before the economic boom time of the post-war period kicked off in earnest. In the film, we meet heroic everyman George Bailey in a moment of personal crisis one Christmas, when an angel intervenes to show him just what his life has been worth all along. It's a story about war and banking, family and home ownership, about small town life and semi-religious salvation. And since the 1970s, it's been playing every year across millions of television sets, in millions of homes across America and indeed the rest of the world. So what do we make of it? Is it a socialist masterpiece? Is it a flattering portrait of the petty bourgeoisie? Is it a Catholic conversion story? To talk about all this and more, I was joined by James Butler. James is a writer, a contributing editor at the London Review of Books and the co-founder of Navarra Media. Quick content note, this episode contains discussion of suicide as that is a significant plot point in the movie, but we don't talk about it in much detail. So with that said, on with the show. Clarence! Clarence! Help me, Clarence! Get me back! Get me back! I don't care what happens to me! Get me back to my wife and kids! Help me, Clarence, please! Please! I want to live again! I want to live again! I want to live again. Please, God, let me live again. James, hello, welcome back. I am delighted to be here once again. <laughs> Merry feeling Christmas. Fest- feeling, feeling very festive. <laughs> I'm wearing, you know, listeners can't see me, but I'm actually wearing what it almost approaches colour. It's very dark green. <laughs> yeah, when you shine it under a black like there's something that <laughs> might might be to a really deluded imagination, not quite black. And I feel like that's personal progress for both of us. Um, so we are here to talk about It's a Wonderful Life. And now you and I had both managed to never encounter it before. I think it sort of seeped through via cultural osmosis for me, like sort of bits and bobs. But um, I sort of thought it was a lot schmaltzier than it actually was. And I sat down to watch it and I, and I thought, oh, this is a movie about despair, a lovely Christmas movie about despair. So for those of us uh, who uh, might be listening and also in the same position, can you give us a bit of a rundown about what on earth actually happens in this movie? Yeah, I mean, so it's interesting. I had seen sort of bits and pieces of it on, on TV, I guess, when I was young, but I'd never really sat down and watched it properly. Um, and we can come back to why it was on TV so much when mm. I was young, when we talk about the film as a commodity and how it sort of enters into circulation, because it's actually got a quite interesting um, critical reception and critical story. But, uh, you know, so this is a film from 1946, um, and... 
whereas last year we were talking uh, about Charles Dickens and A Christmas Carol and the sort of uh, Victorian sentimentality in Christmas, this is a uh, an immediately post-war film. So this is a film that that happens and the sort of you know, summative action also takes place just immediately post-war. So it premieres in, in December 1946. And whereas A Christmas Carol is about, uh, you know, a, a, you know, terrible old miser, Scrooge, being shown, um, you know, scenes of, of, of joy and happiness and, um, you know, undergoing a sort of conversion experience, a sort of semi-secular supernatural um, you know, a, a theologically ambiguous conversion experience um, and, and moving away from money. This is a story about a, a kind of hero, heroic guy, right? A heroic everyman, um, you know, a morally upright individual who falls into despair. Um, and it has many of the same themes as Christmas Carol. It's very interested in the question of money and um, property and the question of um, how one lives. But to, to, to give a, a sort of potted summary, this is a guy, the hero, George Bailey, um, in fact, it's probably worth saying that, that, that like A Christmas Carol, it has a sort of supernatural framing to it. So actually, the movie begins with these sort of disembodied angelic um, voices talking about, uh, you know, this guy, he's, you know, at a critical junction, and we're going to send down an angel to intervene. He is discouraged, which is the word that they use, where we might use sort of depressed or suicidal. I think that's, you know, emo you know there's something interesting about the kind of emotional complex of the film there. But anyway, so, uh, you know, they, they the, and the angel they send down um, is an angel second class, hasn't got his wings yet, <laughs> needs to help out a human being to, to really earn his wings. Uh, kind of great character, Clarence Oddbody is the name of the, the angel in, in the film. Um, so we're, we're shown a kind of, you know, almost kind of Bildungsroman-like uh, narrative of this guy's life from childhood in this small town, this kind of er anywhere, everywhere town, Bedford Falls, USA. And um, he's the son of a, uh, a guy who owns the Bailey Building and Loan uh, which is, you know, what we might think of as a building society. It's a little bank, like one of those tiny little local banks, which constitute, um, you know, much of a, or, or used to constitute prior to the Depression, much of um, American capitalism. So this very early 20th century, um, you know, about 1909, 1910. You show, show scenes of his childhood. He's, you know, a virtuous guy. He saves his brother's life. He, um, you know, uh, uh, prevents the, the chemist from, you know, accidentally poisoning someone. You know, uh, he, he's, you know... He, you know, and he sort of sacrifices his dreams. So, you know, this is a young kid with ambition, right? Like he wants to go somewhere. And when he grows up, he wants to build big buildings and stadiums. And he's going to, you know, really like, this is the kind of classic age yeah. of American capitalism. And the, uh, the spirit of adventure as well. It's absolutely. Always kind yeah. Of wants to travel, under. you know, a very important early scene. The, the kid has a copy of the National Geographic magazine and he's going to be an explorer. Um, but, you know, part of what the film does is... You know, stage this guy's, you know, disappointment in some ways. You know, the sacrifice, you know, he's a virtuous character. He sort of sacrifices his dream, you know, to take over the bank. And then, you know, his brother, who's, you know, he's already going to go off to college and he sacrifices that to allow his brother to go off. And, and you know, so he reconciles him, himself to this life in one way or another. He marries his kind of, eventually marries this um, young girl. And we can talk about women in the film who don't really have necessarily a brilliant time, although they have. Interesting question of agency. Uh, anyway, the, the antagonist, the Scrooge-like figure, there is a Scrooge-like figure who is um, Potter, Henry F. Potter. Um, no relation to the later schoolboy wizard um, 
he is a Scrooge-like figure. He's play, played by Lionel Barrymore in this kind of marvelous scenery-chewing, evil <laughs> capitalist uh, uh, type. And this guy, you know, he's bought up most of the town. He runs, you know, he owns slums. Um, you know, uh, uh, he, uh, he, he owns the big bank in the town and he tries to own everything. And you know, he wants to, to own the, 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 the building and loan, but, you know, they, you know, they resist being taken over by him. Um, and really what's staged there is this kind of uh, contest between, uh, you know, the, the kind of little guy capitalist who's kind of a very virtuous kind of post-war liberal capitalist in that, you know, their little building thing, they, they kind of loan to people at kind of very knockdown rates and they're okay about like, you know, it was slightly dodgy failure to repay in order for them to build and own their own homes. Uh, and we can talk a bit about home ownership and how central it is to the plot. Mm -hmm. And Potter really dislikes this. And so one thing leads to another and, you know, a mishap means that Potter is able to, to um, you know, to basically uh, suggest to the financial authorities that this kind of little bank that the, the guy has taken over is, you know, doing something wrong or financially misleading or, you know, whatever. Uh, and so things become kind of cataclysmic and it looks like everything's going to collapse in on his head and, and whatever. And, you know, he's he's has this kind of huge personal crisis. Mm. Um, it's Christmas Eve comes home to his family and he has kids by this point and uh, has this kind of, you know, absolute terrible sort of crisis. And he behaves quite monstrously to his own family, to his wife, to his children, um, really, really, uh, you know, and, and it's clear he's going through a crisis. Uh, you know, he goes off and gets drunk and then sort of, you know, drunk drives, which you can do in a film today, but, you know, it's comical. In, in, in <laughs> um, and he goes to this bridge and he's about to throw himself off. And this character throws himself in. This is the angel who says, I threw myself in to save you. And then the angel shows him the world as if he had never been born. Uh, and it's a terrible, awful world in which Potter owns everything. The town is called Pottersville. It's given to vice and drinking and, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the chemist, wasn't prevented from killing the boys, so he's a homeless alcoholic after having spent, you know, twenty years in jail. Um, you know, and his his wife is an old maid, and she's never married, and you know, etc., etc., etc. She know, works in a library. She works in a library. The fate <laughs> worse than death. <laughs> My favorite bit of the movie. <laughs> um, and so, I, I guess you know, I, I'm I'm going into great detail on this because the, the plot is, I guess, interesting. Mm. So there's this long, long, long section we should talk about. There's long section. Uh, of, of narrating this guy's life uh, in which there are two dynamics. One of which is this kind of reconciliation, the kind of disappointment in that he hasn't gone farther and hasn't done kind of the things that he seemed like he wanted to do and, you know, the ambitions that he nursed. Um, and yet he's also a kind of virtuous guy who helps people build their own houses and who helps people, um, you know, uh, you know, resists the kind of the, the corrupting lure of big money. And there's a very Faustian scene in which, you know, um, the, the 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 evil banker tempts him with like a big salary. It's like twenty thousand dollars, about like four hundred and fifty k today. Um, you know, so so there, there's all this kind of, this stuff going on. So he lives this virtual life, and that's the main part of the film. Mm -hmm. And then you have this kind of it's you know amazing, intense kind of nightmare dystopia world. And then, you know, like there's a, you know, the, the, it flips back and he's like, oh, I, actually, my life is good. And, you know, I, I have the wealth of my friends and oh, fuck, I'm definitely going to jail. Um, but then, you know, <laughs> in a kind of, you know, very 
sentimental deus ex machina, the wife has been out while he's been, you know, out, out drinking and kind of gone to all these people who actually really, you know, who think like this guy really helped me out and he's helped me get a house and, you know, has got little donations from all of them and he's made up the money and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, everyone's very happy at the end. So a lot to dig into there um, <laughs> because um, what is kind of fascinating um, or one of the many things that's fascinating about the plot is because it's sort of coming along at this a peculiar time in American culture because we talk about it as, uh, as post-war and it is, it's immediately post-war, it's sort of made 1947. However, when we talk about post-war, we often think of this kind of um, economic boom time, a lot of optimism, right? And it's made in this sort of curious, literally maybe five-year period where, you know, people are coming back from the fronts of World War II sort of with mass traumatization, right? Um, and there are, you know, various economic fallouts from that, um, both, you know, positive and negative for the American economy. Um, but there's, there's no way that the filmmakers could have predicted um, how the sort of the literal economy would have shifted in, you know, the three years after the movie is published, um, released in cinemas rather, and how the kind of moral economy of money shifts in order to kind of uh, adapt to those changes. And so I would love to talk about that kind of moral economy of money within um, within the movie because George is a funny character, really, because um, he is, uh, as you say, the sort of virtuous heroic character um but and a part of how that sort of heroism seems to be signaled is precisely in um his ability to sort of telegraph or use things that we would ordinarily think of as like this is the classic american hero who wants to go out he wants to conquer he wants to build he wants to make he wants to do uh, but there's also the sort of countervailing pressure of the kind of moral rectitude of the sort of self-abnegation of self-denial mm -hmm. and it's um and it sits sort of very bizarrely together as a this piece of a classic Americana as we know it today. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think that's I think that's really insightful. It's an interesting part of the 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 film. Um of course in one sense, you know, there's a there's a question of sort of patriarchal transmission here, oh. right? And set, set set you know stepping into one's father's footsteps. You know, if you were psychoanalytically inclined, this is where you would, you know, get your Zizek on. Which I'm not going to to do <laughs> on a Wednesday I afternoon. I, well, I mean, my impression is not very good, and then you know, whatever. Um, but you know, the, the, there's that question of giving you know, because there's a very, moment very early on in the film where he says, "I don't want to, you know, hang out in this shabby little office for the rest of my life." Yeah. And you know, the father says something like, "Oh, well, this shabby little office um, plays a very important role in people's lives, and it allows them to fulfill a very basic desire to have their own house and to have you know, et cetera, et cetera." Um, so there's a there's something you know important there in the relationship between um, the values that one's parents' generation have and that one doesn't see as worthwhile values until you sort of are forced to step into them, right? And so in that sense, it has, you know, a fairly conservative message about, um, you know, the transmission of these uh, values between generations. What I would say is that there is also underlying that or, or, or next to that a sort of, there's something very interesting in the spatial geography of mm -hmm. the film, right? So, it, you know, if you think about it, it's divided between, um, you know, what is it called? Bailey Park or ba Bailey Park, the, which is the the new development that these guys are setting up, right? Mm -hmm. that, that they're funding to build and gradually people are, are coming to build their own home and, and Potter's Field, right? Um, which is the the slums owned by the, the bank. And, and to, to telegraph for our listeners and uh, what would have been obvious to a kind of 
you know, perhaps institutionally post-Christian, but nonetheless rather Christian audience in, in the mid-20th century. The Potter's Field, of course, is where Judas hangs himself um, after, uh, after betraying Christ. Um, so the Potter's Field is often, is, is an emblem of death. Wow. It's an emblem of death. <laughs> um, and, and in fact, that evil capitalist character has so many kind of symbolic, uh, you know, death-like uh, uh, symbols around him. There's a skull somewhere on the desk. There's, you know, all of this stuff. Um, so, so that's important. Like, it's important to see that, that there's something, um, that there's a distinction being drawn between the kind of local small capitalist, right, who engages in a kind of virtuous practice mm -hmm. of non-exploitative lending um, and the sort of gouging, uh, you know, evil capitalist figure. And in some ways, there's there's something very curious about the way that that figure in particular, the banker, is portrayed. Now, whereas there are multiple actors for various of the characters as you go through their lives, mm -hmm. um, you know, so there's the kid actor, and then, you know, there's him when he's young, and then they put a little gray in his hair for when he's, you know, in, in, the, in the main action of the movie. The evil banker never ages. He, he arrives old, and in fact, he arrives in a carriage in which, you know, the angel says, oh, is that a king? It's like, no, that's, a, that's the local banker. And so there's something, you know, and there's something about like, this guy is not suited for the kind of democratic world into which we're going, to which we're moving, to which we're moving in this, this kind of post-war age. There's something very suspicious about him. And, you know, references made to the, to the, to the great crisis and the depression and the, the fact that he sort of, you know, he, he basically bought up half the town um, as a result of the, the great crash. Um, the Bailey building alone is the only thing yeah, that he didn't manage yeah, yeah, to get yeah, his yeah, yeah, grubby yeah. little mitts on, I yeah, believe. Yeah, yeah. And so there's something almost kind of supernaturally evil about him in that, that he doesn't age. Um, he, he, is, you know, he, he is old when the kid is young and he's the same age when the kid is a man. He sort of almost physically doesn't move. He's wheeled around in a wheelchair, right? So he's almost non-corporeal and he has a body, but he's you know, as kind of non extended in the world as you can imagine and he is in that sense like money like the power of big capital right mm -hmm. um tremendously kind of interesting cinematic choices there so that structures the sort of the the, the kind of virtue and, and and uh and vice of the world right and uh, you know this is again something that we saw in dickens there are that there are all these kind of resonances between a christmas carol and it's a wonderful life um, they're not explicit, they're not formal, then, you know, it's not mimicking it, but the same sort of moralizing radicalism, which is very hard to pin down. Um, you know, the, the, the FBI thought this was a subversive film. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's in, in context, it is hard to know, like, you know, if you could had sneezed in the direction of the idea of, sort of <laughs> people shouldn't possibly be allowed to starve completely to death in such a filthy gutter, like the FBI would be knocking down your door. But nonetheless, you know, there there are a lot of, you know, gestures towards um, the idea of just kind of the, you know, the inherent goodness of the working man. Now, of course, we know that that can be uh, chopped and changed a lot of different ways in a lot of different kind of political contexts. Of course, you know, fascism, for instance, has this idea of the inherent dignity of the working man. They just kind of cash that out in obviously a very, uh, very different way. But what's... Um, so it's based on a short story, The Greatest Gift, um, written uh, precisely 100 years after uh, Christmas Carol and um, based on apparently a dream that the author Philip Van Doren Stern had about The Christmas Carol, right? And a, a sort of a classic contemporary socialist critique of The Christmas Carol that we sort of, uh, were talking about um, around this time last year was that it's not really socialist because it doesn't entail any kind of 
structural change, right? Scrooge happens to be a crotchety old miser who hates everyone, and so people suffer, and then he happens to become nice, and so people suffer less. Hooray. But there's something that feels kind of distinctly, I don't know, distinctly American to me about this, because it's sort of implying that a fundamentally sensible economic structure is precisely one in which you know, we are relying on virtue, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you, you know, stepping back from it, you feel like, okay, why on earth are we so reliant on whether or not this one particular person exists, right? right? That I, feels very precarious. I think that's right. And, and you know, the, you know, just to say, I mean, the, 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 although it feels very American to us, um, the Ayn Rand infamously mm. um, accused the, 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 um, the, the film of having uh, uh, or, or, or embodying a pernicious threat to Americanism. <laughs> wonderful. We should put it on the cover of the, the DVD. Yeah, um, and, and you know, and, and there were other reasons for this. In that people, you know, some of the people who worked on the script. I people like Dalton Trumbo, who was one of the original Hollywood Ten, who was called up before Huac. Dorothy Parker worked, you know, polished bits of the script. Um, so that there are all oh, these wow. kind of Hollywood sort of somewhere between liberal and left. But you know, I mean, you're, I think you're right to detect this question of the individual. So Capra says. Um, much later, I think, you know, I think it's in the 60s about his kind of philosophy of filmmaking is, um, the line here somewhere, um, first to exalt the worth of the individual, second to champion man, plead his cases, protest any degradation of his dignity, spirit or divinity. The logical question, very mm -hmm. important there. And third, to dramatize the viability of the individual. It's a tremendously interesting, mm -hmm. very, very American, very mid-century um, interest in, in, in the kind of individual human being and their conscience and their kind of position in the world. And so what I would say that you're, 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 you're rightly detecting in the film is precisely that ferment which produced, you know, what we tend to call Cold War liberalism. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a very pejorative way to, <laughs> to describe it and it, because it, it suggests that it's defined by the Cold War. And I think to some extent it is. Um, but, you know, I mean, the classic you know, expression of this is something like the vital center Right, which gives us that model that we that has now been so kind of bankrupted that says, you know, well, the vital middle is is this kind of center, and then you know you have like uh, the the progressive and the conservative on either side, and then they, they swing into uh, fascism and communism, which then unite into a sort of totalitarian, um, anti-individual um, structure. Mm -hmm. And now, like there are very, there are many many good reasons to critique that. There are many many good reasons to think that that's not actually a, a sustainable. Um, uh, model of, of human of contemporary political ideology, but nonetheless, there is a sort of you know it expresses something that was in the air. So the Vital Center is written, I think, nineteen forty eight nine, mm -hmm. um, and it, it, you know so it's the same time as the film. Really, it's coming out of the same period of the film. You have after this the kind of you know these kind of big projects to to to, to remedy or transform American society. You have the GI Bill, which you know is in the background in the film. You don't really see it; it's not really talked about. But you have you know people you know these these soldiers returning home. And you think, okay, let's get them into education. Let's build homes for them. If we build homes for them, we tie them into mortgages. Mm -hmm. If they have a mortgage to service, then they have to have a job. There will be jobs because they're educated. You know, this is a you know it's a classic kind of liberal. Um, you know, there's, there's, you know, like if only if if only it worked, you know, or, or if only it would, were happening um, these days. And again, this this period is is one in which you know there's a question about kind of you know incidentally 
You know, there's lots of um, uh, uh, rancor in the Democratic Party at the time. There are people, um, you know, there are people breaking liberals, breaking from the Democrats to form the Progressive Party. So there's all this kind of ferment going on about like what you know how you build a kind of post-war society. And I think you know that question of the individual is the thing that distinguishes American political thinking after the war, partly because they're, they're, they're you know they're, they're trying to find the thing that distinguishes their model of social progress from one that might slip into. Uh, 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 communism or, or, or even socialism. Um, the other thing I guess to say here, and I think it's probably important um, important to say, is you know th th this is a film that is not interested in the question of race, um, and it's not really interested in the question of gender. Mm -hmm. um, you know that that, and we can come back and talk about both of those. Perhaps I think they're both interesting. Um, you know, what it is what it is interested in and the, the the message I find actually quite quite sort of sinister in one sense is yes in one sense the enemy in this film is capitalism in as it's incarnated in 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 its most predatory aspect its most predatory financial aspect as you know Potter the evil um, banker but the real villain is the protagonist's self-doubt. Um, his or, or his yes. sort of his desire to do something you know irresponsible outside the bounds of the kind of the, the community, right? And you know I think it's just possible to detect or, or to 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 conduct a kind of against the grain reading of this that there is something something unsettling about the the look. I find the film really really charming. I find it quite moving. And, and one of the reasons I find that quite find it quite moving is the the agony that someone like Jimmy Stewart put into that role. You know, he'd just come back from the war. He'd fought in the war. There's a scene that scene in Crisis where he's crying and drunk at the bar. Like lots of that stuff wasn't in the script. It was you know it was it was improvised. Yeah, he There's had something very very powerful. Live what we would now think of as as PTSD. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, and there's something. So there's something very, very powerful going mm -hmm. on in, in that film. And there's all of the, you know, for, for lots of the films that he's in at the time, he's playing these characters who, are, like, it, it's almost like who have this kind of frenetic energy of idealism, right? That it's almost as if their idealism kind of sustains them from having, you know, like uh, through this kind of period of, of kind of emotional crisis. So, so nonetheless. All that being true, there is something weird and gauzy and and kind of you know improbable. You know, George Bailey is a very finely drawn character. He's kind of got a rich inner life. Well, lots of the other characters are kind of ciphers. They're sort of you know two dimensional. Do do people really behave like that? Is that how people actually live their lives? Of course not. This is a fable. We're in a fable. It's a mm -hmm. you know it's it's telling you a story. But there, there's something you know like you know. And and the way where you where you get this where you get this where this becomes really really clear is is in the kind of nightmare vision right yes. of Pottersville right which you know like this is a, 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 a you know, sure there's lots of things where you think yeah this I can understand this as a, a thing to condemn right it's full of you know it's it's full of people who are hard and nasty and who you know among whom kind of social relations have been broken down so much eaten away so much by um, you know, by this kind of predatory capitalism, lots of these people are living in slums. You know, his friend, the taxi driver, who of course doesn't recognize him because he has never existed. You know, he, his wife has, has run away and taken the children. And he lives in a slum and, you know, whatever. But it's also a place of kind of vice and neon and dancing and jazz. And, you know, there's, there's something kind of 
attractive about it. There's something like, you know, if I wanted a night out, I would go to Pottersville. I wouldn't go to Bed Bedford Falls. <laughs> <laughs> right, you're gonna, you can, if, you, if you want like a thumb full of like lemon sherbet sweets from the local grocers, be my guest. Yeah. If you want a good night out, Pottersville is your guy. And I think there is something um, compelling there about like this, particularly as like, you know, as we now recognize it as a key piece of like nostalgic Americana, thinking about the fact that it's not a, it's not a village, it's not a collection of houses, it's not a city, it's a small town. It's about small town America and like how that as like both a moral and an economic unit gets formed. Because, you know, of course, underlying this are, as you say, not only um, GI bills, but things like redlining, right? There's, there's a very practical reason whereby in an almost entirely white film, in this small town, the only person of color is uh, the domestic servant, Annie, who of course does not participate in the dreams of home ownership that her counterparts do. And it's like, that is in this fable, somewhat realistic. Mm, 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 mm. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, the, the, I, in one sense, of course, the thing that's, you know, that's interesting about it is like, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's at the, the, the kind of tail end of big debates in American culture about, you know, the, the, the kind of dangers of urban living and the outbreak of kind of vice and jazz and all these sort of you know, mm. extremely, you know, and, and, and again, the shadow of the depression looms over this movie, right? So, you know, this is a period in which seeing people ruined on the street, seeing people whose lives had fallen apart around them, who had been driven to drink, um, who had been driven to, to kind of sex work, who had been driven to, um, you know, to seek consolation in dangerous places, a consolation of the kind that, that destroys people um, was very, very common. Now, of course, that's intermixed with all sorts of kind of creepy American puritanism and racism and all of this stuff. But there's something in the background here about that. The fact that that, that both the kind of uh, uh, dissolution of kind of predatory capitalism mm -hmm. and the, in inverted commas, dissolution of, of American nightlife go together in this dystopian fantasy, right? There's something related between them. And I think it's, you know, th that's a thread that's very much worth pulling on. And I think when you rewatch the film, you see something kind of, oh, there's something uncomfortable now about watching it. And of course, this is, this is an environment in which kind of uh, a, a, a kind of secularized, a semi-secularized um, conversion experience is very common. Um, you know, the, 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 this is, this is the, the world in which um, you know, all sorts of social reform programs are born, you know, it, it, you know it's, it's exactly the kind of experience that produces the kind of conversion that George Bailey has in the movie. Um, and, and so, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't want to necessarily dwell too long on this question, um, but it is, you know, it's it maybe, you know, the, 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 you know as, as a, the moral trajectory that, or the sort of redemptive or psychological trajectory that Bailey takes in the film is an intriguing and important one, mm -hmm. um, and and there's you know again this is a, this is a piece of art that's made you know in a, in a period in which people are have gone through war have gone through difficulty have gone through major you know, and are still religious right it's a Catholic film Capra was a Catholic there are Catholics in the film although there's you know although it's bad on racial discrimination against black people it's pretty it's pretty clear it's pretty good on showing you know the discrimination that's made against Italians in the period <laughs> right um, you know and this <laughs> yeah. is a you know and you know Italian Catholics you know when, no you no know, I, they, I just, they, I'm so I'm so online that I immediately think. <laughs> 
my brain goes to Ariana Grande is Italian X memes, <laughs> but that's a, that's why I'm I'm laughing. <laughs> it's nothing you because know, yeah, that was a real like, like the, the KKK, KKK. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But let's okay. One of us finished that thought. The KKK was um arraigned against uh arraigned against Catholics as well as against Jewish people and Black people, and uh, uh, because it was you know a, a seen as a sort of a frontier of um, the disillusionment of like proper whiteness. I mean, when when today you see kind of like scary satanic panics talking about people speaking in Latin, like that's where, that's part of where that comes from, right? It's the scary Catholic language. I mean, you know, the, the evil capitalist figure says, why do you want to play nursemaid to a bunch of garlic eaters? That was, <laughs> I love that. Really, really wonderful. But um yeah, I mean, I, I guess the thing to say here, and I, you know, I think that I'm interested in works of art like this, and it's true in A Christmas Carol, and it's true in in this, it's true in a, a number of um, films, novels that, that I like, is this, you know, question of a, a, a kind of secularized conversion experience or a secularized theological um, foundation or semi-secularized. I mean, again, there's a difficult question about this film. This film is it's clearly, you know, it's a supernatural film. That there's a, there's a, you know, starts with angels, mm-hmm. and there's an angel. There's, you know, and, and in that sense, there's a kind of Deus Ex Machina involved. Um, but it's also, you know, the, the the message it articulates is not an explicitly metaphysical or religious one. It's about kind of, you know, finding value in in you know, the fact that you are, you know, a part of a community. You are, you are, you know, communally embodied. Your your selfhood and your value consists in the your relationships with other people and the virtue that you. Um, you know that you produce in the world. The angel says to 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 Bailey. He says, you know, I'm going to give you, you you're a recipient of a great gift because you get to see what the world is like without you. And so there's an argument being made about yes, the, the kind of specificity and importance of an individual virtuous man, but also the kind of structure of community as well. Mm. And none of this is religious, right? This is a, a completely secular um, realization of worth and value. Um, conducted through a frame story which is at least nominally metaphysical, and actually the the kind of the 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 inner kind of emotional component to it is very very similar to you know metanoia the the the, the kind of turning of the the mind um, you know it's the, the the old Greek term for conversion right like this is the that turning of a conscience right and and you know and the, it it you know and I think early in the film one of the kind of you know celestial being says you know this is this is the most important moment of this guy's life mm-hmm. right like you know is he you know is he going to make the turn or not is he going to realize and so it, all of this is to say that there is something almost tragic about the sensibility that capra has in this film right and 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 in many of his films that there is a kind of that, that bailey is such an interesting character because you know, like many of us, like anyone who has achieved adulthood um, or any measure of kind of adulthood, one always has a feeling that one's goals have not quite been reached or life has uh, gone in a way that is is different to to the one that you expected um, and and how you kind of go through. And, and that's, a, that's a difficult realization, right? Like it's a painful and difficult realization. And how you integrate that, how you go through that and what you do with that is a very, very difficult question. Um, and, and in this... You know, I, I don't think it's necessarily an adequate answer, but it accounts for some of the p- film's emotional power yeah. is that it engages with that question, a question which many of us, you know, at the end of the year, you look at the past year, you think, what the fuck have I been doing? Um, you know, <laughs> the, the, or you think, you know, like, oh, God, another year's gone. Am I doing the thing I want to do in my life? You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's lots of this kind of stock taking. And, and this film provides a narrative which allows people to kind of engage with that. So it derives its emotional power from that, which is a very, very common experience. You know, 
often people arise from that experience and say, okay, I must change my life in this way or another. Yeah. He doesn't. He says, I have come to realize that my life is actually good. That my life is, you know, as it is constituted in my relationship. Because he doesn't, you know, at least outwardly, he doesn't change. I mean, I think there's an open question at the end of the film. Um, and I think I was saying before we started recording, there's something very interesting about the kind of speeds, mm. the varying speeds that there are in this film. He becomes more and more and more frantic as, as things go on. And then it ends in this sort of almost sort of meditative, static you know, he's in his house and the community is coming to him and all the community is, is incarnated in, in this space and they're kind of giving their little donations and, and, and things. Uh, and, and there's something, there's something so interesting about what's happening there um, because he, you know, there, there's this, it's this moment of, of kind of stillness and realization, a sort of almost meditative realization um, and a moment of kind of redemption um, through the kind of suffering that he's been through in the film. Um, but what that actually constitutes politically is 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 not necessarily very pleasant. It's a it's a sort of like oh actually I don't need to change. Nothing about my community needs to change. Um, actually that you know everything as it has been happening is good and it's fine. And and the question you know the the kind of that 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 kind of the the salt under the sweetness there is like in one sense of course he is now detached from that community. He has seen the other possibility. Yeah. He has understood the contingency and the fragility um, that undergirds the social order. And that is a forever changing experience, right? Um, and that's something that nobody else in the film has undergone. It's a deeply kind of isolating as well. And it's particularly because of um, the filmmakers, for instance, really went uh, into battle with the Hayes Code regulators um, who would usually specify that the villain of the film um, gets punished at the end and they wanted to see um, uh, the devilish uh, Mr. Potter get carted off in a police van. And uh, Frank Capra et al. Um, were saying, no, 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 that would be, um, uh, you know, that would be terrible. And I think there is something kind of very politically compelling about that um, to, to uh, the kind of contention that actually this sort of, no one holding him in check, right? And that is a kind of, you know, I guess a compelling observation. Um, but but this kind of moment of stasis is really, really curious because um, on the one hand, you have um, kind of quite a classic staging in um, in kind of uh, the great American novel, which is a very baggy, vague phrase, but which is classically um, uh, makes an opposition between, on the one hand, community, togetherness, family, stability, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, that is always in contention, pulling against the idea of like freedom, individuality, what's out there in the wild blue yonder, and that kind of thing. And George Bailey is someone who very kind of neatly encapsulates that sort of tension. And I find it very bizarre um, that in a movie that affirms that actually you know, freedom, sort of self-realization is not the important thing. The important thing is that you stay home and do your duty and sort of accommodate yourself to a sort of a, a livable level of despair. That that person is a man. Right? Mm. That's mm. usually a kind of a form of sort of um, expected feminine self-actualization. Um, and it's, it, it, I don't know, it, it, it's, it's kind of funny to me because um, very often um, the um, the kind of, freedom-loving, go-getting, hyper-individualist uh, side of that is affirmed. And we can make some, uh, you know, maybe pretty obvious uh, links between that and the kind of moral sanctity of the capitalist entrepreneur, right? But then if you look at, okay, what other figures are needed within this economy? You also kind of need the small town guy who is 
kind of all right with a certain level of catastrophic disappointment, mm -hmm. right? And um, I come, came away from the film, um, yeah, being absolutely sort of, you know, um, I was moved, I was charmed. Uh, Jimmy Stewart is just like, he's a fantastic actor. There's lots of, it's like quite a witty script, fantastic dynamic between him and Mary. It's, well, it's yeah, all very lovely. You commit suicide around here, that's illegal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just, oh, it's fantastic. Um, but then I sort of, you know, think for 20 minutes and I think, oh, why do I, why do I feel so unsettled by this? Why do I feel so bleak? Because that is what, the film is kind of asking mm, of us mm, in some ways. It's so, it's so interesting. And, 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 you know, again, you know, there's something so interesting about the fact that, that it wasn't a commercial success when it opened. It mm. only becomes a success much later. Um, in terms of that kind of that question of the sort of tragic dimension, there are these moments in the film, these kind of proleptic moments, which means uh, looking forward. Um, where where uh, you can see in Jimmy Stewart's eyes mm -hmm. his realization that his life is taking a different track right in front of him, like in these decisive moments, and then see this kind of astonishing wave of disappointment that is then reconciled. He's a marvelous, marvelous actor, and mm -hmm. you know it's an interesting. The production history of the film is very interesting in that there are, there are three different cinematographers, and they, you know, it's, there's a complicated, difficult kind of studio relationship at the time. Um, but but certainly those those you know those long shots of his face often in kind of crowded rooms or in train stations, mm -hmm. you know where he realizes that his life is taking a different track. They're so moving mm -hmm. that you know like I you know and 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 everyone everyone's felt that right like you know everyone's felt that moment of kind of disappointment or thinking like, fuck this is going to turn out differently than I had hoped. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so there's something there's something so strong in that, but. Uh, you're right that it's curious that it's a man that it happens to, right? And that there's something, um, you know, the, the women in the film, and and you know, you know, it's worth talking about the two really significant women in the film. So one is the wife, Mary. You call a woman Mary in a film that you know there are obvious resonances, <laughs> um, and she's she's almost kind of cardboardy. She's almost kind of two dimensional. Um, and yet she's also, she has agency. She, you know, she's gone off to, to school. She's gone off to New York. She comes home because she, you know, the film suggests she misses him. Um, you know, she basically pursues, he's kind of quite hapless actually in his 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 kind of relationship with, with women. She pursues him basically and marries him. She, you know, puts the house together. Um, you know, she is much, much, much more competent in terms of, you know, like other human beings than, than he is. Mm. You know, she is ultimately the, the, the source of agency um, in the film's resolution, she is the one who, while he's been kind of thinking about killing himself, has gone around and you know um, got all got all these donations or, or organized this kind of rescue. The other woman in the film is Vi, mm. and she's great. So she's, she's played, but the actress goes on to play Ado Annie in o Oklahoma, who is you know has an almost parodic relationship to the character here. Ado Annie is you know her song famously is "I'm Just a Girl Who Can't Say No." Um, yeah. There's a fantastic um, mo moment where there's sort of um, so Violet and Mary are kind of childhood best friends, four or five years younger than um, George Bailey. That George is working um, a sort of part time job at sort of a, a local shop. They're sitting at the at the counter. Uh, Violet says, "Oh, I like him." Mary says, "Well, you like every boy." And she says, "Well, what's wrong with that?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh, I love her. <laughs> I will follow her for the rest of my life." But she's a super interesting character in that in the in the kind of dominant timeline, as it mm. were, you know, that she is she's you know she grows up to be a bit of a femme fatale, and she's thinking about leaving town and like you know she you know she's always had a thing for George, but you know like it's never acted upon. 
who's a virtuous man. And you know, in, in a sense, like his virtue almost sort of transfers to her, right? Like he lends her the money to, to go. Uh, and then, you know, at the end of the film, she decides not to go and she decides to stay. Um, and in the kind of dystopian timeline or the kind of the vice ridden mm. timeline, she's, she's a girl who's fallen completely. She, you know, as she's being carted off, she's, you know, this is, carted off out of the dance hall by the police into the back of the man. She's like, I know every influential man in this town. And you think, so, yeah. So, and then, so mm -hmm. this is a, you know, like, so there's a, this question here about kind of the degree of sort of sexual agency. And, you know, like, again, dominant messaging here is a kind of classic Hayes Code thing, right? Like fallen women, et cetera, whatever. Um, but the interesting thing is that, that in the, you know, good universe, as it were, the, the universe in which she's existed, she's not, like, you know, she's not a kind of stay at home, uh, you know, I've never had sex kind of woman. She's, the, you know, like she's she's aware of her own sexuality and her power. She's a tremendously interesting character in the film. And, you know, like, you know, I it's impossible for me as someone who, who loves that, you know, who loves Oklahoma, the the the. Yeah, amazing, amazing. Oh, you amazing. really do contain multitudes. You know? Yeah, yeah, no, it's great, great <laughs> film. It's a great film about you know the the the, the question of justice and um, tyranny and and, <laughs> and and the sort of the, the the danger of sort of vigilantism and the you know etc. Whatever. Um, great, incidentally, the the production that that played in in London this year, which was a kind of reimagining it, which brought the kind of the question of racial violence to the floor to the fore. To, super, super interesting. You know, not you know. Go watch Oklahoma. Yeah, go watch Oklahoma and then, you know, like go to the theater. The theater is good. People should go to the theater more often. There's a lot of crap. There's a lot of good stuff. Um, anyway, um, so I can't, it's impossible for me to, to read her as not through Ado Annie, who is the later character, who is almost a sort of parodic, mm -hmm. you know, form of her, right? Like um, in, in which there's something almost pitiable about her. But the, the you know, well, there, there is the agency, blah, 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 whatever. But so there are these two women in the film. It's a kind of classic sort of Madonna whore um uh, opposition, which nonetheless doesn't have, you know, or it didn't for me when I was watching, didn't have any of the kind of sourness or misogyny that you kind of really associate with her. Nonetheless, you know, I think, I guess the open question, you know, along with the Italians, along with the, you know, the two women with the, you know, like, is these characters are almost cipher-like, right, for the kind of internal yeah. drama of this one kind of uh, this one kind of character. And that's fine, I think, in a movie like this, right? This, this movie is a fable. Right, and it, you know, you 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 don't necessarily have. Not every character in a fable has kind of moral depth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I mean, you know, it's 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 you know, the, the, these these roles are super interesting. I guess the so the question of gender and the question of race are both, you know, almost elided in the film. You know, unsurprisingly, in in this kind of post-war post-war moment. Um, but I, you know, the thing that is is so clear in it and so clear from it. Is, is just how much despair there is in the background, how much, you know, how latent in the social settlement of the post-war period that, you know, was this kind of, uh, you know, extraordinary tendency to, to kind of despair and, you know, uh, uh, dissolution. And I mean that sort of psychologically as much as, uh, you know, alcoholically or sexually. And so that's, you know, it's the thing that gives the fable enough salt behind the schmaltz to make it, um, affecting and you know like I think Orson Welles said of the film like it's in a film that's impossible to hate and I, like I feel like I should you know I feel I feel <laughs> like it's, it's it's kind of so I, I I hate things that tug on my heartstrings and yet I'm also a kind of I'm so susceptible partly because I'm so susceptible to sort of <laughs> sentimental um you know so you know sort of sentimental readings of it you know, like so for instance you know, i i find that i find the the final scene unbearably moving partly because i'm so susceptible to those scenes of family reunion in mm -hmm. in 
you know, particularly in late Shakespeare, where there are all these sort of these plays that end with, you know, oh, I, you know, a bit uh, the daughter or the father would were yeah. thought to be Your dead. Your mother or the has wife. been a statue yeah. all along. That kind yeah. of thing. I, yes. I, that to me is the most emotionally moving in the- moment in theatre, partly because it's a sort of meta theatrical miracle incarnated on stage, working at all the levels at once. It's an unbelievable, extraordinary moment when it's done well. But but any kind of moment of family reunion, I start, I really start kind of, you know, oh God, I'm going to cry. This yeah. is, you know. <laughs> There's like this bit of, um, I love, I love, love, love King Lear. And one of the things that absolutely, I mean, gut punches me about it is the fact that like King Lear, precisely that we're denied that moment, right? Yeah. King Lear never gets yeah, to yeah, see yeah, yeah. Yeah. his daughter at the end. He's just kind of carrying her after, um, he's carrying her uh, her body after she's been hanged saying now my poor fool is dead because they never get that moment of reconciliation yeah but like yeah, yeah. yeah this is a i feel like i should be um i was like i sat down to 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 watch it with kind of my guard up because i thought you know semi-correctly that like okay this is a very sentimental movie this is kind of a little bit of a schmaltz, schmaltzy movie i'm ready to be emotionally manipulated but of course it got me yeah, yeah. That final scene is, you know, the, the 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 trajectory of the whole thing is constructed such as that, you know, such as to build the sort of tension that's released there. In that, you know, the the whole community is redeemed. In that, they all crowd into his house to offer him, you know, you know, the whole of the good society mm-hmm. is incarnated in that moment. In in the kind of in that moment of kind of uh, uh, restitution uh, at the end, sponsored by an angel. <laughs> you know, so you can't get any better, you know. And, and so it's this kind of, you know, it's justice delivered in poetic format. Yeah. Um, but it's striking that the film, you know, really didn't, wasn't a huge commercial success at the time. Despite, you know, as we've been saying, embodying so many of those post-war aspirations or uh, uh, understandings of how society is or ought to operate despite the fact that it is in its own way an extraordinarily touching movie, despite the fact that it contains some really, you know, astonishing performances from, from the lead, especially, despite all of that, it, you know, it, it, didn't, it didn't really succeed at the box office at the mm. time. It ruined the kind of studio uh, and sort of, you know, people like, oh, well, Capra's lost it, right? And Capra has a kind of previous film career in which he makes these blockbusters. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington being the most famous of them. Again, you know, small man against the kind of corruption of the, the you know, of, of, of the greater, um, you know, uh, abstract society. Yeah. Also with uh, Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and so the, the, you know, this, you know, so it's only when it falls out of copyright 28 years later, because that's how long copyright used to last unless you renewed it. Um, thanks, Disney. <laughs> uh, so it falls out of copyright in the mid 70s or early 70s. And, um, this is precisely a moment at which nostalgia for this kind of post-war settlement, post-war settlement is starting to fade. Things have become more troubling. Um, you've got all the kind of disquiet of the post-68 period. Things are getting weird in America. Um, you know, there's war again. Um, all of this is going on. And then this falls out of copyright. And that means that cable TV can show it without having to fucking pay. And so it gets plastered <laughs> over um, over networks every Christmas. And so it's there all the time as people are continually exposed to it. So there are two things. There's an appetite for, for a kind of sentimental film, which emerged at the kind of height of post-war liberalism. Mm-hmm. Um, but also it emerges as a commodity because it's public domain. And you know people can 
uh, engage with it. It's funny, actually, that the, the film gets colorized. Um, and uh, Jimmy Stewart actually says, you know, I, I actually can't bear to watch it colorized. And, and it's true. I've seen some frames of the colorized one. It's fucking monstrous. Um, but the, the black and white film, public domain, um, easily, you know, can, can be, can be you know, shown by anyone. Um, and, and, and therefore, you know, enters popular consciousness in a much stronger way mm-hmm. um, because it's fallen out of the kind of, <laughs> or, or sort of half fallen out of the kind of, you know, the commodity network. Um, super, super interesting. And um, because of that sort of um, strange, sort of semi-religious nature of it, it does dovetail well into a sort of like the acculturation, if I can put it, put it like that, of Christianity, right? Like mass uh, faith is pretty much sort of collapsing as a sort of like a as a, a practice amongst many sections of American society. It's it's also inflating uh, in others because of you know the rise of uh, evangelism. Um, but sort of the adaptation and the, the importance of the idea of certain Christian signifiers in basically the the affirmation of you know the moral character of America and also particularly what they're talking about is the moral character of white America. This becomes uh, it sits quite well alongside it because it's sort of it's Christian-ish. It talks about angels, but kind of God is is not necessarily there to uh, play the same game. It talks about the fact that suicide is, for instance, God's greatest gift, but it doesn't talk about and also you might burn in hell if you go through with it. And you know there are lots of uh, things about you know that remind me of or make me think of that really curious moment um that the film comes out in because like you have the necessary um affirmation of sort of homo economicus right this self-interested resource maximizing profit maximizing economic unit that is the foundation of you know capitalism uh, supposedly but then you've just had world war ii as well right where you also have to push the ethic of sacrifice, of this kind of complete depersonalization before a greater God, right? The, the angel says, I threw myself in the river to save you, which is sort of supposed to echo exactly what George Bailey has has been doing, right? Mm-hmm. And the fact that George Bailey has been doing it, and he doesn't get the medals that say his brother does on the front. It's this sort of greater, unrecognized sacrifice. It's all kind of bound together in this strange christian-ish mishmash so what, what are we supposed to make of it on a on a theological level well i mean it's it's an it's an interesting one i you know i uh as some listeners may know i, I was raised very catholic i you know they, so so in, in a sense the kind of in catholic worldview sort of structures very deeply my approach to to the world um, and, and in that sense, the kind of moral universe of the film is you know, immediately recognizable to me, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you know, I understood, you know, immediately. And, you know, it's a very Catholic thing to be interested in kind of angels and intermediaries and kind of like the, 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 the ultimate big guy, like, you know, bit, bit kind of, <laughs> yeah. bit transcendent. Um, I suppose, you know, I suppose, so I, I think there are two things that are important here. One is that there's a sense of the world as a sort of veil of soul making mm-hmm. right? it's a famous phrase augustinian phrase right that that there are a series of kind of moral trials in the world which which produce the kind of ennobling of the soul in one way or another and that's and that's why bad things happen yeah i mean it's not a very effective theodicy but like the the you know i mean it, it, you know i think it's i think it's more interesting if you see it as kind of a, a way a way to account for the question of sort of subjective formation 
um, you know, that the I, you know, rather than a, as an attempt to kind of you know, deal with these kind of, you know, rather formal questions about evil, um, don't want to get necessarily trapped down that avenue. The I suppose, I suppose, okay, yeah. so I suppose what I would say is that 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 this is a yes, this is a, a society which is rapidly secularizing. It's gone through a big, big, big catastrophe, um, but that is nonetheless possessed of, if not a kind of ultimate kind of metaphysical belief. Um, or, or is questioning those sort of you know, those series of kind of metaphysical propositions is still strongly, strongly culturally Christian. And you know, look, the United States is still to this day much, much, much more strongly culturally Christian um, uh, than, than than any European nation, really, mm-hmm. p- possible exception of Italy. You know, and it was a different kind of Christianity anyway. Um, and, and so those those kind of questions are, are sort of deeply baked in. I think there are, you know, th- this. There's an ambivalence in the film about the sort of slightly Faustian desire to build new worlds and new uh, huge constructions and 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 that that desire to sort of travel and see the world, right? Like there's something it has a kind of distrust of, of that impulse, even while understanding that it's a sort of necessary thing that needs perhaps to be domesticated and tamed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he he says to to Mary at one point, "I want to do what I want to do." But is it ever clear to us that George Betty really knows what he wants to do? So he has these kind of, you know, desires, these kind of almost infinite desires in one way or another to you know, see everything in the world or to build these incredibly huge things. But, you know, like actually, you know, it's his, his, what, what the film seems to reveal to us is that he feels equally a kind of sense of desire to meet his duty and to meet his responsibilities. Um, and, and that, that perhaps it's the constraint of those duties which allow him to see ultimately um, those things that 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 um, that really matter to him in one way or another. This is again a, a very kind of uh, a, a Christian attitude in some ways. Again, totally, totally not interested in the question of salvation. Totally not interested in the question um, of of uh, you know, or interested in the question of redemption insofar as it's a social question. Mm-hmm. You know that 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 question of of constraint providing ultimate freedom is is one that recurs, I think, in in lots of uh, artworks or films like this. You know, the the obvious mirror in some ways is the the constraint that was provided by the Hayes Code um, at the time, and that you see people um, to, and the Hayes Code, as we said, is that sort of disciplinary, uh, you know, make a clear kind of moral structure to your to your films. Um, if you read the accounts of filmmakers later who say, say they find a sort of, um, you know, ultimately, although obviously it was repressive, obviously it was censorship, whatever, they found the constraint forced them to find more creative ways mm-hmm. to to engage with, um, you know, the, the things that they wanted to do. I suppose that, that, you know, I mean, maybe the last thing to say on this is that, you know, I keep returning to that question of how, what happens when, when Bailey returns to his community. What happened? You know, what is it to go through? You know, a profoundly life-altering and life-reordering experience, right? In that your not only has has your system of value sort of changed, right? Um, although the question to which it you know, has really changed between one and the other is an open question. But but you have gone through an experience that has allowed you to see everything around you in a way that nobody else in your life can has or will Mm -hmm. in that sense he is someone who's undergone a conversion experience 
in that something in him has changed very profoundly and changed permanently. Um, but he's also much like uh, you know those 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 kind of the, the the questions that are going on culturally at the time about what artists are for about what mm. um, filmmakers might do and might contribute to the world, what in particular mid-century modernists, you know, picking up the wreckage of the kind of post-war civilization might do. I'm not saying that's deep. I'm not saying that's, that's, that's at the forefront of the film. Mm. But that question of like what happens when you return to a community having experienced something that nobody else has experienced. Mm. Uh, you are, even when you are reintegrated into it, are still outside of it. And and because he's gone through an, an experience of death, right? Yeah. And it is articulated very, very um, sort of in the text as, you know, the experience of death is also an experience of freedom. He has died to his community, but he's still kind of, he's still got a body still wandering about. Like if he wanted to, he could disappear. He could go and do everything that he has ever wanted to do, right? You know, actually many people, many people, did actually disappear yeah, after, yeah. World, after yeah, yeah. World War II. That is a choice that many people did make, right? Um, there are very, very good records in many ways because, you know, the nature of the military about, you know, who died, who went missing in, in what battle. And, you know, so we know that there were people who just walked out of their lives in the way that, like, you know, there is a, that is a sort of a Faustian bargain with with Potter, but there is also kind of a weirdly a Faustian bargain with... Um, uh, with the angel mm-hmm. as well, being like, okay, you can just reform everything. You shouldn't, right? Um, but you know that is very much a possibility that's presented to us, and there is um, something there about the development um, or the uh, reformulation in the context of this kind of mass social change in many, many ways of uh, that question of you know why live, right? Mm-hmm. You know the 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 uh, philosophy of suicide basically is something that you know many philosophers, many um, thinkers, many historians are acutely interested in, right? There's this question of like, okay, if there's no God, and uh, and certainly if I won't be, you know, punished by damnation to forever hell, um, why would I not kill myself if I'm having a bad time, right? That's a very sort of, um, you know, gauche way of putting it. But it is a sort of presented as a bit of a gauche question, particularly if you are, for instance, as many people were, acutely psychologically suffering the effects of war. Just wondering what we're to make of that question of um, of suicide mm. in uh, in the film, because obviously it's 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 delicate um, to to talk about, but there is a sort of bizarre breeziness with yeah, it's, which it's, it's, it's treated. It's funny, right? Like it doesn't. It, you you would expect a phenomenon like that to to have a sort of you know, uh, lead ball on a rubber sheet effect to the the texture of the film, right? Mm-hmm. It should be it should be set a moment of such kind of profound gravity that it that it distorts everything around it. Um, but it's not, and I think, you know, one. The, the, so there are a couple of reasons that it's that it's not. One is that the film, the film simply kind of forestalls the moment, right? Like the the moment is you know the the, the angel throws himself in instead, um, and and in fact. You know, this is given to us as a sort of, you know, clear, clear kind of, you know, example of the need for sort of moral interventionism. The, the film's relationship to suicide is purely instrumental, right? Like, and it's it, this is kind of telegraphed by the fact that the guy has the fucking life insurance thing in his pocket, right? He's like, if I kill myself, then I will be able to kind of deliver like the, the money to my family, like, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, um, and they say, you know, multiple times, you're worth more 
Yeah. Alive than dead. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so in, in that Sorry, sense... Sorry, dead than alive. That's a very important... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oops. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but the film's message, of course, is that he's 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 worth um, immeasurably more uh, alive than dead. And at no point is that I think ever really in doubt because that message is delivered only by evil people. Yeah. Um, you know whether that's the 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 evil banker or that that side of himself that sort of you know has decided that that, that he's he's worth. So so in that sense, and, and and you're right, of course, to identify that that it's you know it's important that it arises at this moment in which you know like the question of you know, whether there is a kind of foundational, you know, truth on which one's life can rest becomes a philosophical question um, for many, many thinkers post-war, right? Very common after a war to think, okay, well, if human beings are capable of such depravity, you know, on, on what can I found, um, mm. you know, why should I go on living? Well, I mean, the, the answer that it makes you know, very clearly is, you know, because you're constituted socially, you're not an individual. And so the curious kind of paradox at the heart of the film is that it is so, you know, Capra is consciously interested in the question of the individual, but his interest in the individual takes him through the individual into their constitution by the community in which they live. Mm. And, and there is that, again, we'll talk about that sort of really odd ambivalence in this like moment of, of ideological and economic change um, when it comes to the Place of the individual because it very much says that sort of yes you are free but you are also kind of nothing mm -mm, mm -mm. and and it's um in that sense very curious that the film also focuses so so heavily on uh, like homeownership as as something that fundamentally underpins you like how you are constituted socially and how you can be constituted socially in you know what we can very very broadly term the good life yeah but i mean the question of home ownership there i think ties into this question i mean one way of looking at the film is that there are these sort of wild passions um which may be the passion to kind of wander everywhere and he said you know when he's a kid he says oh, i'm gonna have a harem i'm gonna have loads of wives right and mm -hmm. this is this kind of jokey but yeah. it's you know it's there just as um, the, the the bad passion to suicide is also a kind of you know emotional um, you know uh, uh, overwhelming of barriers in one way or, or another, and one of the things the, the the way the film treats home ownership, you know I think his father is that says to him you know that it speaks to something very primal in the race that a man wants a four walls and a fireplace of his own, <laughs> but the, the the idea is that um, you know the, the the you know ownership of property somehow domesticates. That being a word, of course, it's important in this concept. Domesticates um, those passions and uh, and allows them to be turned to productive ends. And there's, you know, in in one of the kind of conflict bank meetings, this is sort of the thing that he says to the evil banker. He says, you know, it, it makes men good citizens, and they have to get jobs, and they go and pay, and they they buy more from you if they, you know. So there's a sort of, you know, there's something. The film basically assumes that the kind of building that Bailey is doing in his kind of Bailey Land or Bailey Park, I can't remember what Bailey it's called. Park. Bailey Park. Um, it is a means of sort of civilizing the in you know the dangerous and destructive and often overwhelming um, passions that um, you know that, that man is subject to, and I use man advisedly there. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, I guess the other thing to say, or the thing to, to round out that that observation, is that you know there are conservatives in the film, and there are kind of you know soft-hearted, um, you know incapable sort of uh, sentimentalists, 
Um, and, and Bailey is neither, right? And in that mm. sense, he is such a creature of the kind of post-war liberal imaginary, right? Like, because the uncle is the kind of, you know, soft-hearted, kind, but like ultimately completely incompetent, like progressives. Yeah, yeah. He's and, kind of visibly sweating at yeah, all times and yeah. always on the verge of a panic attack. And then, um, and then there are the obvious kind of um, rather evil conservative characters in, 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 in the production. And he isn't either of them. He's that sort of, uh, you know, that, that fantasy of a sort of, uh, active centrist. Mm-hmm. I suppose the, the fun coda to this question is when centrism is revived as a political project in the Clinton era, Schlesinger, Arthur Schlesinger Jr., who writes this book, The Vital Center, in the, in the, in the late 40s, exactly the same time as the film, says, well, you know, actually this kind of centrist technocracy stuff, this isn't the vital center, this is the dead center. Mm-hmm. Um, and, <laughs> and, you know, so that the idea that kind of all conflict is kind of absorbed into the sort of, uh, you know, the mere project of action is, is you know, is, is not quite what, what, what this post-war imaginary wants. It, it wants a sort of democratic culture or claims to want a democratic culture, claims to want a culture of kind of actual production and, 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 and you know, whatever. Um, but that's, that's yeah, uh, that, that, that's not how it turns out. <laughs> it turns out. Um- why why christmas as the as the scene uh, for all of this and there is something um that that strikes me as this sort of very kind of um ambivalent um connection between like christmasiness and the affirmation of family mm. right that's kind of where you're supposed to go for christmas but of course you know talk to anyone and you will find that that is often a very uh, very complicated or a bit of a fraught scenario and often bound up with like various forms of work that you might not otherwise be uh, wanting to dive into with both feet as uh, uh, you know in your few days off from work right I feel the the, the personal bleeding through <laughs> <laughs> I you know what I'm I'm so I'm such a Christmas person I actually love it um, I, you know but, you I know, do as well and I think that's interesting you know I really you know and I, it took me a, a, a while to to love it but the you know, I, I do think kind of the the what's that that Elliot? Yeah, I mean, like, okay, so the the yeah, sure, the sort of kind of schmaltz and the kind of you know, forced sort of social patterns that that one may be uncomfortable with in one way or another, and and whatever. But the you know, it's funny that Capra didn't or claimed not to have thought that this was a Christmas movie, right? Despite you know, it's set at Christmas, like whatever. But he you know, he he didn't think of it as a kind of Christmas movie. Christmas was the setting for it. Yeah, I think as I was, you know, as, as as I've been saying, like this is a moment that this time of the year is a moment when people take stock, they reflect. There's there's something kind of in the air about kind of trying to find a narrative pattern that justifies, explains, and reconciles you to your life. A very very common thing this time of year, um, you know. And 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 is that a kind of a purely you know the the secular translation of a kind of Christian? Um, philosophy of history somewhat mm-hmm. but I don't think entirely and I think you know this is this film is a vital and, and fascinating kind of contribution to a, a sort of you know a, an interpretation of that you know or, or a way of answering that question um, you know in 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 not quite a contemporary mode but in in, in a modern mode um, there's something important in the film that it, it shows that, it, that the families are not idealized 
right? Like they're, they're not, you know, they're, they're, yeah. they're, they're pretty good families, but they're mm. not idealized. Right, there's mess there. There's, there's mess. Reality. Like there's the annoyance. The, the kid is playing the fucking piano, the same fucking tune over and over <laughs> again on the piano. Like you, you get it, right? Uh, and that, so there's something I, that that's that I think is part of the the, the dynamic here that it attempts to kind of um, show this kind of to to knit the kind of ordinary pattern of experience of a human life into a kind of greater structure of meaning, um, and that's something that we all need in one way or another. You know, therefore I rejoice, having to construct something upon which to rejoice. And with that uh, beautiful Christmassy rejoicing note. Thank you so much, James, for joining us. <laughs> it's been an absolute delight. <laughs> uh, it's a pleasure as always. And uh, listeners, I hope you have a Merry Christmas or a Happy Holidays, however you're holidaying, uh, from all of us here at Navarra FM. Good idea, Ernie, a toast <laughs> to my big brother, George, the richest man in town. <laughs>